Um, I'll just briefly introduce what we're going to do here. My name is Dora Varga. I'm a postdoc um, at the Reluctant Internationalist here, and and surprisingly, I work on Cold War um, history of um, science and medicine. Um, so um, the Cold War history of science, technology, environment, and medicine, to be exact, um, is a blooming field that has exploded um, uh, recently. Some parts of it are more explored than others, and many, uh, much of it is written from an American perspective. Um, for instance, on research on nuclear science, computer science, military technology, um, and the space program. Um, some recent uh, scholarship has produced uh, groundbreaking work, um, diverse scientific fields um, such as the Cold War politics of big science and environment, social sciences like anthropology and, and global health. Um, some of it is so new, like the Cold War politics of Eastern European health and medicine, that um, half of the field is sitting in this room. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'm not really exaggerating, I'm afraid. Um, so um, just um, to, uh, this panel basically ties in a lot of what we've been um, thinking about today. It's a lot about East-West binary, um, as the East as a, uh, as a receiver of knowledge and technology uh, and practices while the, the West is, uh, is producing them. This, the, I'm talking about conventional narratives, not you know, um, uh, our, our opinion or mine, at least. Um, but uh, there's also a, a, a strong issue of ideology um, in question a lot of times, uh, and especially in the, during the Cold War, science in the West was portrayed as just plain science while in the East it's corrupted and, and ideology infused. Um, and then that begs the question that science, which is perceived as neutral many times, um, if that uh, created some kind of co cooperation or spaces of detente that, that, uh, where, where the, the two um, halves could meet. Um, we're, we're talking about the state, who's funding the, the science, who's taking part of it, who's setting the agenda. Um, we're um, looking at it at, from a global um, perspective often, um, and this also um, raises the issue of if we stand, if we get out of this binary of, of Soviet Union and, and the United States, will this um, uh, reveal something different about Cold War science or the Cold War itself? And, uh, and lastly, was Cold War science something particular that was different from other science? Um, so can we talk about Cold War science? And I'll uh, just, uh, after these few remarks, I'll hand it over to Alma Steingart, who's uh, at Harvard, and go for it. Right. Five uh, minutes. <laughs> uh, so just first, thank you so much for the invitation and for the great panels uh, so far. So what I thought about doing today is just to begin with a really, really short, short uh, historiographic note. And the reason I'm going to do it is because I think that in many ways, the sort of uh, literature that we have about Cold War science uh, is very much beholden uh, to a specific uh, historiographic tradition. And it was in the 1980s that historians of uh, science began looking in the way in which the Cold War changed uh, scientific knowledge production. And in particular, uh, what they did at the time is look in the way in which the patronage system, so how did the federal and military funding regime in the United States uh, ended up shaping the sort of scientific knowledge and the sort of scientific theories that were being produced. Now, when I say historian of science in the 1980s, I should say that what I really mean is historians of physics, 
because it really was historians of physics at the time were representing kind of the lion's share of the field. And these studies um, uh, were in fact so, um, the, kind of the, hist the lessons from the studies were so strong that when later on historians of the social sciences in the United States started looking at how did the Cold War influence social sciences, they basically took the same model many times and asked a very similar question, namely how did funding end up changing the social science uh, research in the post-World War II period? And what I want to do today is I'm going to try and pose uh, three questions, um, maybe three possibilities for kind of breaking away from this tradition. And I'm going to try and illustrate, uh, hopefully all three, but if not, if I don't have time, just two of them, uh, from the area that I know best, which is the history of mathematics uh, in the post-World War II period. So the first question is, how can we write an intellectual history of the Cold War uh, that incorporates the lesson of the past literature, but does, the, does so in a new register? So what I mean by that is the debate um, at its core asks us to believe in the notion of pure science, right? So this idea that there exists, this idea of a search for knowledge for its own sake. Uh, but of course, that such a notion speaks only on scientists' motivation and doesn't really tell us anything about the work itself. Um, second, instead of asking, which is what mostly been asked so far, is how did the Cold War impact science, we can instead ask how did science impacted the Cold War? And here I don't mean things like the atomic bomb, which is obvious, what I really mean is how this particular notion of scientific knowledge and scientific rationality played into these ideological battles of the period. And third, um, what sort of cross-disciplinary stories we can tell about the production of knowledge in the Cold War that cuts across the sciences, the social sciences, and even the humanities. So in many ways, I think that the terms of the conversation were served already in the immediate aftermath of the war, when this distinction between basic uh, and applied research was drawn and then enforced into the federal funding regimes. And this is separation, uh, it's worth noting that it is based not on motivation, but on justification, right? So the idea is that it's worth pursuing basic research because it might have potential uh, useful possibilities and utility for applied research. But in fact, if you look at uh, sources from the period, many scientists themselves acknowledge that such a distinction is meaningless. And I would say that nowhere was this sort of debate articulated more forcefully than in mathematics. Um, mathematicians were the only one who held to the title of purity um, in, the, in that period. And they, are, they argued virtuously the distinguishing between pure and applied mathematics is not only impossibly impossible, but it also actually historically inaccurate. And I think that in reading their work and their arguments from the period, it is tempting, and, and I can attest to the times I've been guilty of that myself, um, to read their, their argument as empty rhetoric, right? So there's some kind of attempt to be included within the funding regimes. But I think that this would be a mistake, uh, because for them, there, there really wasn't any inherent conflict in arguing um, that their studies were motivated by kind of search for truth, uh, at the same time that they were potentially useful. So I think that this sort of apparent conflict that we see today is, uh, is a problem for the historians. It actually wasn't a, a problem for the actors at the time, and it's worth keeping that in mind when we look at um, the kind of production of knowledge in the period. So second, I think that there's a lot of recent work um, on the notion uh, that's been published actually in the past two years on the, on the notion of a kind of Cold War rationality, 
Um, and what this literature, and I'm thinking of the work by Paul Erickson and Lorraine Dastin, um, Michael Gordon, and what this uh, kind of literature makes clear is that scientific modes of reasoning had crucial impact on the Cold War politics. Um, this kind of type of action intellectuals uh, that held position of power, uh, we are told, held they, they were they held onto this notion of rationality as formal, rule-bound, and universal. I think that this uh, actually touches a little bit onto um, what we talked about in the <coughs> second panel. These are the people that, you know, in, in, in effect, um, kind of were fighting for this ideology of non-ideology, right? So this notion that in the West uh, there wasn't any ideology was already uh, uh, build on this idea of scientific reasoning. Um, so uh, I think that there are two ways that we can read these studies. And one way is to claim that the conditions of the Cold War and the ideological battles at its core, uh, if not necessarily enforced such a view of rationality, was at least favorable <coughs> and encouraging to it. But there's another way that we can read it, which is that this, the, the particular ideas of scientific theories as universal and as formal uh, were appropriated and incorporated into the heart of the Cold War machinery. And I don't think that the two ways of reading it are necessarily contradictory. Um, but, uh, but where I think what they do the fair is, is where they uh, send us as historians uh, what, what we should examine. So instead of looking at how rationality impacted scientific domains, the question becomes what were the roots of this view of scientific thinking? Where did they arise? And how were they changed, if at all, during the Cold War? Um, I'm going to try and last, like, really, really quick point, which is I think that there is um, the division that actually the division between the sciences, the social sciences, the humanities that the literature so far has uh, maintained. Uh, worth asking: Are there st are there stories that we can tell about the intellectual life of the Cold War that cuts across uh, these domains and that do not pit the sciences against the humanities? Um, I have a few ideas for that, but I'm going to stop mm -hmm. here and. We'll we can get, get back to questions. questions. Yeah. Don't forget. Um, next, uh, I would like to introduce Jonathan Oldfield. Uh, I think again. Um, yes, uh, if I could ask someone to turn on the projector, please. Thank you. And maybe we'll need the help of Dave. Sorry, Dave. So I, uh, I thought I'd, uh, I'd put it onto slides because I, it's the last session-ish and, uh, and also I've been told by many people I have a very boring voice. So I, uh, <laughs> so I on slides. Uh, <laughs> um, so I've got 19 slides so I was working it out and I've uh, got about four slides a minute and I, uh, I talk very quickly too so it does help uh, to have slides. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I responded to two of the Dora's questions, uh, uh, if that's okay. And I thought I'd respond to, uh, to, the two, to these two questions, uh, just picking up on uh, recently published work and, and work I'm doing uh, at the moment. And, uh, and I thought, uh, kind of raising questions rather than answering questions, but at least responding, which I think is different to answering. Um, so the, um, the first one, was there an Eastern and Western science? So this, this kind of ties in, I, I think, quite nicely with a recent work I did with Dennis uh, Shaw, which came out, uh, well, technically uh, last month, uh, the end of last year. And I think uh, the way that we approached it um, would suggest that you know, there was something called the Eastern and Western science in the sense that uh, we looked at it from uh, the way in which the particular socio-cultural context shaped uh, those, the, the scientific thinking. In this case, uh, we're interested in the way in which um, Russians um, 
engaged with, understood uh, the natural systems, physical natural systems. Uh, so, again, picking up on many things that have been said today, we, we went, uh, we started way back in the 19th century and, and followed it through. So the Cold War became simply part of a, a, a broader story um, through which we, we started to, we, we basically looked at a whole range of, uh, of, of written documents and uh, uh, and journal articles and so on and so forth, wrapped up with how we understood physical systems uh, from the late 19th century through to about 1967-68. So that was the idea. Uh, so making some very obvious points, but these things certainly came through. Uh, so as we move through those periods, uh, you, you get a whole series of influences, and these bubble up at different, in kind of different ways in different places. Uh, and there was no kind of sense of, of, of order here. In, in, there's, there's no overriding order in that sense. There's a whole range of say influences emerging more strongly at certain times. Uh, certainly individual scientists came uh, bubbled up very strongly in certain instances, um, not just in the Soviet period, but actually more so before the Soviet period. Um, academic rivalries were, were kind of a key part of, of what we, uh, we began to look at, uh, in the, particularly in the Soviet period and into the, uh, into the Cold War period. And these were along ideological, but also and quite, I think importantly, personal lines as well. So this was not just around those uh, the ideological issues, but uh, people didn't like each other, and uh, and uh, these these things, you know, were, were part and parcel of those debates. And you can even we began to pull those out even in the the, the not not just the archival work, but also in the uh, the journal articles themselves. Um, and then the one thing that, that did emerge very strongly, obviously in the Soviet period, it's always there throughout the, the kind of eighty years that we looked at, um, but it emerged very strongly was that link between this this kind of scientific practice and state. And uh, just to make two very simple points, one is that there is that sense of you know, the malign influence of the state uh, with respect to that, uh, the Cold War period in particular. In particular, that period from 1945 to 1953, uh, the Stalin plan, Lysenko, uh, the, the influence of Lysenko in those periods, and, and that kind of malign influence was, is obvious, an obvious point to make. But certainly <coughs> in our work, we found a lot of countervailing trends, and I mean, make an obvious point, but uh, a whole range of, uh, of, of kind of more positive traits and, and certainly, again, an obvious point to make, but even within the, the, the published literature uh, around that period, the 19th, late 40s, 50s, uh, a lot of the debates, even within that literature, once you've got past the first paragraph or two, you're, you're actually into science rather than ideology or debate or you know, kind of rhetoric or uh, that kind of, those kind of superficial uh, debates. There's a lot of science in there, in the published work, and, and actually quite a lot of critique as well of things like the Stalin plan in published work. These aren't just in the archives. Uh, so there's quite a lot of interesting material there. So we were looking at those debates uh, within those published works. Um, and then, I mean, picking up a few things that have been said, but certainly the big science issue, uh, obviously there's a big debate about big science in, in, in the Soviet Union and, uh, and, in, and in the West. And people like Kuzhevnikov and, and, and individuals like that have said, you know, that's, this actually goes back into the Zara's, late Tsarist period as well. Uh, with things like KEPS, uh, the, 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 uh, the First World War Initiative, and, and so on and so forth. So anyway, lots of those kind of things began to, to bubble up in, in the kind of work uh, we, were, we were doing. Ideology bubbled up quite a lot. Uh, Lauren Graham's work was quite influential for us, uh, sure. And uh, the, uh, the, the idea that, uh, that actually for us, people interested in physical systems, dialectical materialism actually is pretty useful. Um, and it has, as you know, Graham's work in 73 said, there are a lot of reasonable principles and opinions there. Uh, so that was part of what we were doing. Um, resistance, I've only got about 50 seconds, so I'm just going to quickly go through these, these slides. Um, the, I just want to move on to the international dimension, which is the second question. This is work that I'm doing on Bidiko and, and Soviet climate change, and this interna international dimension is, is very evident in this work. 
whole whole range of areas too. Um, Bidika, an interesting guy, operating uh, with in the recent period, he, he died in 2001, but uh, he was part of the, the international initiatives around uh, climate change. Um, this work is a key work, 1956. This became very famous in the West, and it's that kind of movement of these texts. This was published after two years in 1958 in English and became very influential to the extent that you know, people like Miller uh, were saying this was, this was important for method methodology and the, the analysis of global scale data in, in climatology. So these, these works were moving, even in the, the kind of you know, the very coldest part of the Cold War period. This kind of work as well, the, his work on the heat balance, uh, and this kind of material became very important in the West. So this was moving quite markedly. And then this is my last point. Uh, I could see the, the hand moving. <laughs> um, the, uh, just to make it a point that the, there was a very famous paper in 1969 uh, in TELUS, which, uh, and there were two papers, one by Budico in TELUS, one by Sellers in a, in, a, in a competing journal, both saying the same thing around the, uh, this kind of simple models of climate change, uh, which I can't go into. But the interesting thing is that that model became a Badico Sellers model. And, and there's an interesting fusion there of East and West, uh, and so on and so forth. So those kind of things we need to pick up, and I'll stop. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, the next on our list is John Egar from UCL. And uh, without further ado, please. Thanks so much. Um, so the brief that we were given by the organizers was to speak to certain questions. Can we talk about Cold War science? Uh, what are the points of comparison between East and West? Uh, what can we say about collaborative projects and shared interests? Were there continuities between East and West there? And um, what was pure science in this period? So what I'm going to do is address each of those questions and give just some um, answers from my point of view, partly from my research, partly from elsewhere. So can we talk about Cold War science? Well, certainly we can. If we think of the Cold War as having the severely compressed temporality of modern warfare, the idea that research that could have been done prior to conflict now has to be done in advance. This means and implies a permanent mobilisation of research and development and also a step change in funding. These are the two, um, I think, most significant sort of strategic changes that affects the sciences. Um, so here's a quotation um, from the scientific advisor to the board of the Admiralty from 1955. And he's saying, we've got to underline that the nature of the present armament race is in fact a research and development race and not one for the provision of equipment. It's fundamentally a Cold War of research. So a Cold War in which science is central. And that plays out in many different ways. So to just to take sort of three dimensions, first of all, quite obviously, it leads to direct support um, for certain branches of science, military electronics, from missiles, aircraft, submarines, early warning, and so on. This is sort of core Cold War research. But there's very interesting indirect support for branches of science. Take for example, radio astronomy in the United Kingdom. Radio astronomy isn't directly a military, militarily relevant science, but it both comes out of military science and also maintains those links and is 
always playing civil and military interests and patrons against each other to support it. This is the picture of black and white science that David Van Curen described um, a few years ago that is quite different from the historiography from within the Cold War um, that was described to start with. This is basically the Paul Foreman position where, um, where the scientists are essentially dupes, that there is a hostile scientific environment, there's an alignment of interests, and that does eventually shape the content. Now, it's very buried in Foreman's work, but it does shape the content. But the scientists are essentially there, being, uh, their interests are being realigned towards certain interests. And it's a view from within the Cold War. It's a very Cold War-inflected historiography. And the post-Cold post War historiography of science puts agency, I think, back in and distributes it around so that you find scientists actually being much more active agents in the construction of, of, of their projects and knowledge. And that you find that, for example, in the case of radio astronomy. So there's interesting indirect influences like that. And the third dimension, one minute, <laughs> is discursive. There are language of code, for example, like Lily Kay's described in the case of genetics. So my final point, I'll say, what are the points of comparison between East and West? The fundamental point here, I actually reject some of the movement towards making East and West look so similar and emphasising the transnational and the movement. I think the first order picture of separation is still the fundamental truth of the Cold War world. A quotation from 1955, direct penetration of the Russian research and development programme was impossible. We never saw a single Russian equipment until it was in operational service or it was deliberately shown. That meant research programmes, right, which had to be developed, were basically developed on the basis of incredibly uncertain knowledge of what was going on in the East and was therefore mostly based on what was already going on coming out of the home research establishments. There was a still, I still hold Paul Edwards' view of the closed world as being a first order good guide to how discursively and in terms of knowledge the Cold War operated. Thank you. And our next speaker is Iris Borowi um, from, from Shanghai University. I know many people have asked me, I'm only going to Shanghai in 10 days, so. Okay, I don't have much time. Um, what I'm going to say is drawn from a, a project that I worked on during the last two day, years, and that's basically on uh, was comparative on, East, on um, medicine uh, in Eastern and West Germany. So I'm not claiming that this is going to be true for all science in all countries, but in, in that particular field. And the way I, I thought about it was, um, you know, there are certain elements of, of research and science that make science that are sort of crucial. You need money, it costs money. I mean, we are here because somebody pays for us. Um, I do think there is a tension between um, basic and uh, applied science. It certainly isn't medicine, no matter where to put the money. Um, it is about asking questions, then who gets to ask the questions, who gets to, uh, not to ask questions. It is about exchanging ideas, which is why we are here, that mm -hmm. sort of thing, um, you know, publications, meetings. Um, and I think, you mentioned that already, it, it involves very different actors who have their own different agendas. 
and I would briefly like to um, address <coughs> all, these, um, all these issues. Money for East Germany was a big, big problem. Um, again, they, they did compare themselves to West Germany, but even if you don't do that, if you only uh, compare them to the expectations or the hopes of their own scientists, it was just never enough. Um, of course, the, the question is, is there enough and how much of the money that is available do you put on science? Um, uh, compared to the overall, probably it wasn't, um, it, it was really quite a lot, but the money that was there also was in non-convertible currency and in some ways that was a bigger problem than the actual amount of money that there was because it meant, it, um, you know, everything that had to do with Western countries um, traveling, um, buying um, equipment was a huge issue. It was just very difficult. Um, the, um, the, the, the point of the uh, applicability of pure science actually became much more important than I had anticipated um, because uh, the, um, the, the, the medical sector tried to retrieve some of its costs by selling drugs and equipment on the international market and particularly in, in um, evolving countries in the third world. And actually that becomes a, a very strong motivation for uh, cooperation with other countries. And it actually, the rhetoric becomes surprisingly capitalist. Um, I mean, they, they talk about um, discovering markets. Actually, they do send scientists to Latin America and also to Asia uh, to, to, to find out where they could possibly uh, find an interest for their own markets, for their own products. Um, I as far as the questions are concerned, of course, as when medicine is concerned, I don't see that much of a difference. I mean, that is probably different to, to your field. Um, I mean, in, in many ways, diseases are, I know it's not that simple, but somehow the diseases are similar. You know, malaria is malaria. Um, what I do find, um, and that surprised me also, uh, was it comes to um, sort of questions on the margins of medical science, that is, how do you organize medicine? Um, I, I would have expected that um, it would have been the idea in these to export a more social oriented uh, system that was also not only propagated but also practiced to a much larger extent in the East than in the West. Um, but uh, in international cooperation, this really didn't happen at all. Um, I, I talked to several people, Alma Atta was unknown. I mean, the idea that, um, um, that you could uh, shift some of the funds uh, from therapy to prevention was basically unheard of because I think it raised um, political questions that didn't want to be raised. Exchange, um, for that, that sounds banal, but I think it isn't. You need a common language to mm -hmm. begin with. I mean, we are here, we speak English, that may come naturally to all those of you for whom it's a native language, but, um, you know, it, it is a convention that in international scientific meetings, we speak English. Um, and that was a big problem for Eastern Germany because for a reason that I haven't been able to figure out, they never made that a priority. When they moved to other countries in Africa, in Asia, for 40 years, there is a constant demand. Do you have publications? Do you have texts in English that you can give us because we don't read German? And until the very end, it's, they don't really produce this. It's, um, I don't understand why. Um, also, um, in, you know, international publications do tend to if, have to be in English. You may say that this is unfair, but that's the way it was. And they produced very few, I know. 
Um, traveling, meeting people was very difficult. They produced in Russia. Hmm? They produced in Russia. Yes, but people in... They have an alternative international. But Russia never, never developed that status. People in Africa didn't learn Russian. Well, I can only say that those that talk to the English, they kept well, saying for four decades that they wanted we'll English language. We'll get back language. to this point um, okay. very, very soon, I promise. Okay, for traveling um, and meeting people, for conferences, um, money, of course, is a constant issue, um, makes it very difficult, but also, of course, the restriction because there is a constant fear of defections. Um, people are simply not allowed to travel as much because... Um, because authorities are afraid that they won't come back. And if they do, its family members have to say that. Okay, um, I think um, I, that what you were talking about, I think um, making distinctions between different actors is very interesting and important because of course scientists wanted to do just what scientists want to do everywhere. They wanted to meet colleagues, they wanted to publish, they wanted to make their, 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 their research known. And um, an, an interesting thing, okay, I don't have time for that, but it's the ways that they found to, um, to do science um, despite the restrictions that they were facing. Thank you. Um, and now uh, Sarah Marks uh, from the University of Cambridge. Hi, I work mainly on uh, the history of psychiatry and later disciplines, so the psi disciplines for short. Um, and I, I work particularly on um, Czechoslovakia and East Germany. Could you just turn that towards me so I can yes. see the time? Thank you. Um, but today I actually want to talk mainly about Czechoslovakia because I feel that it is a country that still doesn't really have an adequate historiography, uh, despite the fact that it actually is very important in Cold War rhetoric, it, particularly, I think, in the West in terms of um, moralising discourse, both from the left and the right, about uh, communism, in terms of the Prague Spring, in terms of Charter 77, in terms of dissidents. Um, but we still don't really have an adequate book, say, on the intellectual and cultural history of the Prague Spring, one of the main moments of the Cold War. And actually, um, the Prague Spring, which is not what I'm really going to talk about uh, today, there is a very important role that science plays in this. There's, there are big debates around systems theory and how one could reorganize society through cybernetics. Um, and the reactions to things like the, the so-called scientific technological revolution, as there was in other socialist countries. Looking at Czechoslovak history through science is also quite an interesting thing because it challenges some of the standard periodizations that we have. Um, one of the main narratives of Czechoslovakia is that it didn't properly de-Stalinize after 1956. It was delayed, it didn't really happen until the early 60s. But if you look at science, almost immediately in 56, it completely blows open. Um, so it, I think looking beyond the rhetoric of dissidents, um, of literature, of artists, of students, of these in high politics, um, there's potentially different um, periodizations that you can see. Through the lens of the Psi disciplines, um, I was wondering about this question, can we talk about Eastern science in this case? There's a very interesting paper by a very famous sociologist called Nicholas Rose, um, who's based at King's these days. Um, 
He wrote it in the early 90s and he said essentially one of his big arguments throughout his career is that the psychological disciplines have been absolutely crucial for liberal democracy because they teach people to self-regulate the behaviour. It's very Foucauldian, the kind of technologies of the self argument. Um, but he particularly links this as being specifically, um, not necessarily unique, but specifically important to democracy and liberal democracy. Um, and he says that now that the Berlin Wall has fallen, we can assume that psychotherapies will emerge in Eastern Europe. So it's not even a narrative of decline, it's a narrative of assumed absence, mm. um, which actually is just not the case if you look at the sources. Um, psychotherapy and uh, psychiatry was important um, in both East Germany and Czechoslovakia, um, and particularly this idea of needing to look to Pavlov as a way of... Um, of thinking about human behaviour. Um, one way in which I'd say East and West were different in this sense um, is the continuation of certain categories such as neurasthenia, which is kind of like stress. So this continues in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Uh, I mean, it's still used today, um, whereas it drops off in the West uh, by the Second World War, essentially. One of the reasons it continues is because it, Pavlov uses it. Um, so if you're trying to create a Pavlovian uh, ideological um, psychiatry, then it's quite a useful tool. Um, again, in relation to the scientific technological revolution, you can see Cold War rhetoric. Um, Industrialisation is necessary, it's part of communism, it's one of the things we need to achieve. Uh, but it also has side effects. People become stressed, people have um, issues with new technologies and factories, etc. But the ways in which we in the East are better than the West are that we teach people how to uh, do relaxation therapies, autogenic relaxation therapies, or we educate them through kind of prophylactic educational material about neurosis. Um, whereas in the West, they'd just be left to, to suffer. Um, so the, this is one of the areas where I think if you're going to talk about a kind of communist psychiatry or communist side disciplines, you can actually see that. But at the same time, I think it's a very problematic way of thinking about it, because if you think about where Pavlov had his biggest legacies, it's in behavioural psychology in America and Britain particularly. Um, so at, at London, the Institute of Psychiatry in the 1950s, you have a bunch of communist psychologists who were doing a Pavlov reading group who set up behavioural therapy, which essentially is part of the basis for what we now call CBT. It has a very, very long history. So you also have a communist psychiatry, but it originates in London. Hmm. So I'm not really sure that necessarily this East-West comparison is always as helpful as we think. Um, the majority of side-discipline-related uh, stuff in um, Czechoslovakia, I would say, really didn't have much engagement with um, communist ideology at all. Um, there was... Um, half a minute. Half a minute, okay. Um, there was a very big um, LSD uh, psychotherapy project. It lasted for 10 years across three different clinics, and it, um, for example, involved... Um, regressing patients back to their uh, Jungian ancestral phylogenetic state, so people literally standing uh, on, on their hands and knees going through their lizard phase again, which <laughs> really was not what I expected to find in the archives, but it was there nevertheless. And also particularly odd things that you find in 1969, so a year after uh, the Soviet invasion, 
Um, they publish Freud's collected works through the state publishing, health publishing house. And I thought maybe that was kind of, they, they slipped it through um, during the Prague Spring, but actually they then put a second edition out in 1971, which kind of hints that by that point the state had maybe given up on ideology altogether. So there's lots of paradoxes and very confusing um, examples from Czechoslovakia in particular. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah. Um, and last but not least, what I say to from... Uh, Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, thank you to the organize for organizers for having me here. Uh, Wakar Zaidi from uh, Lahore, Pakistan, uh, the Lahore University of Management Sciences. Um, I'm going to talk about technology. So I will uh, just give a brief, um, I suppose, uh, history, my history, historiographical take on where we are with histories of technology in the Cold War. I'll make four points there. And then time permitting, I'll talk a bit about uh, what I would like to see more of in our histories of technology and perhaps slip in something about my own research there as well. So um, if, if you look at uh, uh, surveys of the Cold War, um, I, I, I think the most salient technology that comes out are, of course, uh, nuclear weapons. So uh, either uh, uh, technology is related directly to the weapons themselves or to detection, delivery, and monitoring. Uh, and this is in, in particularly the case if you look at political surveys, political general surveys of the Cold War. Um, and what they tend to do is bring in nuclear technologies uh, through the rubric of the arms race. Right. And the general sense in this literature is that the only technology which has had an appreciable impact on the Cold War has been nuclear weapons. Okay, so th these are these are sort of the big surveys, um, John Lewis Gaddis style. Okay, now moving beyond that, um, there is a more specialist literature which points to a wider range of technologies. It tends to single out five technologies and stresses both their importance for the Cold War and the role of the Cold War in their development. Right. So these are electronics, satellites, uh, computers, sometimes electronic computers, rockets, uh, and the internet. Uh, so one example of, of this literature would be uh, the Cambridge History of the Cold War, where um, David Reynolds uh, has an article titled Science, Technology, and the Cold War. But interestingly, he only talks about transistors, satellites, and computers. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, OK, and uh, some of the points made by this literature include um, the very important point that many of these technologies have their origins in the Cold War, uh, in World War II or before. And that the Cold War is seen as sort of spurring on their development, um, and that these are uh, uh, this development is state-driven and a product of what's sometimes called the military-industrial complex or the military-industrial-scientific complex. Okay. Now there is uh, th there is I think a developing literature which uh, which moves beyond this and is part of a wider understanding that technology and technical development broadly conceived were deeply uh, affected by the Cold War. So Cold War imperatives played an important role in the development and use of various technologies in the expansion of technical education and the employment of technologists. So for example, the Cold War expanded big science research, uh, and one of its defining features was the high-tech and big-tech nature of the science now being patronized by the state. The Cold War drove a systems approach to technology. It pushed miniaturization and it led to the development of a closed war, to use Paul Edwards' phrase. Uh, that is, technologies which focused on global scrutiny, control, and containment. 
Computers became highly influential through their use as guiding metaphors for new research programs. The Cold War spurred the creation of technological systems organized around the need for collecting and understanding information. Now, um, allied to this has been a greater understanding of the ideological aspects of technology, but particularly technology's importance as symbols of power, prestige, uh, and the Cold War. Uh, so in other words, material things, for example, um, thought of as techno-political artifacts that embody the Cold War or had the Cold War inscribed into them. Oh, uh, indeed, not just the Cold War. So there are studies that have looked into how other belief systems, uh, for example, nationalisms, have been inscribed into a particular technology. So I'm thinking about the work of Gabriel Hecht in particular, who has coined the phrase um, techno-political artifacts to think of technologies in order to emphasize their, uh, their, uh, the, their situatedness and their embeddedness in wider political, uh, cultural, and indeed ideological thinking and institutions. Uh, I think, uh, finally, of course, there's been a push to project. Um, scientists have begun to, historians have begun to study a push to project um, have begun to study the push to project and materialize ideologies of modernization on the global south by both the east and the west. So in this case, the, the modernization project that, that, uh, that has been studied was centered around particular notions of technical expertise and techno technological development and was based upon the vastly superior technical, economic, and military resources of the west and east vis-a-vis -vis the third world. So I'm thinking about you know, the work that's now being done on technical assistance and on dams. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for these very rich presentations, despite the, the five-minute minute limit. So um, we'll open up for questions. So we're going to collect a few questions and then um, let the panel respond, because we have exactly 33 minutes for all this. Sandrine. Yes, uh, I have two questions. The first question is a question of language, which was raised by, uh, by um, uh, Iris, and uh, of course it's a very important question because, for example, if you look in international organizations, the uh, uh, Eastern Europeans had a problem to sell their experience <coughs> because they were not speaking the so-called international language, which was, of course, I mean, English and French, mostly English, which means, in fact, the language of the Western part of the world, and they spoke another language. But it doesn't mean that they were completely stupid. It just means that they, speak, they spoke another language, which was not the language of the Western part of the world. Now we speak English as a kind of international language because there is no other part of the world. But uh, they, spoke, uh, they, they, spoke, uh, they spoke another language. It was a real, very important issue. So, and uh, uh, we have to think about, for example, for physicists, I know there is a very good uh, uh, physics in uh, the Soviet Union. And most of the journals were translated in English, but not by, by the Russians themselves, but by the US. So it means that if they really wanted to know what was going on in the US, I mean, they could, uh, in the in, in Soviet Union, they could translate. I have a second issue, which I find is very important. I mean, you tend to forget about the uh, technical embargo. Uh, you know, all the things uh, uh, which is connected to the, to the COCOM, yeah, which was set up in 1949 by the US and uh, which aimed at really uh, trying to, uh, to, to, uh, to not to sell uh, technical, technical goods uh, to, to the East. And it was a real problem for the East. So that just try 
to uh, um, circumvent that by uh, uh, applying to a development program in order to get, for example, computers through the development program. So, you know, I mean, uh, it's another way of looking at, uh, at, uh, at, uh, at the Cold War as a kind of, uh, I mean, there was this, this problem of communication between both blocks, but were really um, um, uh, yeah, a byproduct of the Cold War. On the other hand, I mean, physicists, for example, they circulated. I mean, the, the, the knowledge was circulated very much. So it means that you could, uh, you could uh, go through that. Okay, so it was my yeah. Dina? Um, I, I, the first thing I want to say is that just something that's just mentioned. Um, I, the Soviets were translating mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the literature and actually kind of employing specific teams in each country that were highly scouting these journals, translating them into Russian, dispatching these translations back to the USSR, and that was like a very uh, carefully defined system of distribution and access to these translations that just circulated. Well, and also sometimes you see people, actually the degree of access, essentially how many translations you get and what journals can you read was a matter of personal prestige. So we see like top scientists lobbying the central committee, oh, can we please get uh, like that bit of news and expand their access to, to these uh, bulletins. And that was a matter of routine. Um, strangely enough, it was the, the Soviet offices of uh, past the Soviet news agency that was doing the translations. Um, that's kind of on side. I have many <coughs> questions uh, to, to all of you, kind of just stuff I was thinking about as I was listening to the presentations. Um, I was wondering, uh, especially what Carr's uh, contribution made me wonder whether the proliferation of surveillance technologies that we have today, that doesn't have a Cold War kind of precedence, and so how, and like what's, what's where the relationship is. Um, I was also thinking about the relation, kind of in our day and age, there was, we have like, there's a concept of a relationship between individual and science and technology. Like we all have a relationship with technology, so I'm wondering, um, does that notion start in the Cold War and somehow and part of the claim for kind of a, how during the arrival was how advanced you are, not only in your physics and your Sputniks, but also in the, you know, the washing machines and the microwaves. Um, so what does it mean and how does it impact the notion of individual technology? And finally, I was listening to Alma speak and it suddenly kind of struck me, um, we know how many of the dissidents were actually scientists. Um, so maybe I'm wondering if this notion that a scientist weighs in a debate or a scientist make these kind of argument that does make does it give them extra power? Is that <coughs> more prestigious what they say more important because there's the you know the Sakharovs and the Shavaskis of this world? Thank you. Um, we have one more question from them. Thank you very much. That was a fascinating panel. I have one question about the profession. And I'm really curious as to know whether you're scientists first, then historians, or historians who latched on science. Because I discover our planning and architecture, the historian is actually an architect. Um, so that was a question which I think is quite important for the way this could make might develop. Um, I'm really sorry to interrupt. 
science there. Um, <laughs> my specific question really stems from Alma's paper, which was very interesting. And you, you said about um, the history of maths being formal, rule-bound, and universal. And I bought into that straight away. That sounded right. And it also <coughs> sounded as though confirming what one's learned already, that the social sciences looked to the hard sciences in America and devolved their own models so that we were all categorizable and we've landed up with big data. So you can see where that's got us. Um, but the, the historical question I have for you is that have you got a, a causal relationship? Because from what Sarah seemed to be saying is that psychiatry and check Czechoslovakia and so sort of had its own trajectory. It proceeded in its own way. So what I'm wondering, and it would be interesting for you and perhaps the others, is whether the Cold War influences the sense of a rule-bound regime, or whether the rule-bound regime had handy application if you were working out who was going to drop a bomb first, <laughs> so you could apply it to negotiating theory. Sorry, that was a bit long. Uh, we're going to, um, as the panel to respond, and then we'll I'm happy to start with uh, mm -hmm. the, the last question, just about um, the the sort of uh, uh, question about this this where does the causal relationship? And I think I think that this is exactly the point: is that, it's, uh, that I think that the causal relationship is not simple, um, and the, the historians should look at exactly in both directions. Oh, I should stop before. I'm an historian. It's a, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm just it's a historian. I think most historians of science uh, these days are historians who just look at science. Um, and that being said, I think that like the job is to look at exactly this question, which uh, this notion. So the, there's one version of the story is this, the social sciences, be, exactly because they wanted uh, there's kind of like a physics and is one way of talking about it. There. But this idea of uh, trying to ex show that they are not ideological, right? So that's one version. It's in order to show that they are not ideological, and their science is objective. They went and appropriated these kind of like formal notions of uh, um, kind of formal mathematical notions, uh, and the sciences became more and more quantitative in a way. Um, but I think that's. I mean, these notions about uh, formal reasoning didn't arise suddenly out of nowhere. Uh, they had already, they were already there in the 1930s uh, and already in the 1920s. So the, 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 I think the important work is to try and show this is this is not a just simple causal relationship uh, that goes one way. It's actually both, I mean, I think it's, it's more complicated. I think it's actually it's both. That there's, there is something about this kind of like ways of reasoning that made it more easier uh, to argue for within the Cold War period, um, but also uh, that this sort of reason ended up affecting this, the way kind of like the kind of ideological about all the Cold War were thought of. Uh, so I think it is. I, I think it is both ways. And I just will say one thing about languages, which is funny. The other thing that we're not we haven't said is that science itself was seen as an international language, right? So there's we talked about languages, English, and but like uh, many of the scientists and definitely mathematicians, they saw that as an international language. This is exactly was the place in which international relationship could exist. Because they are not ideological, right? At least that there was a the image. Um, let's go um, from, from there, and then we can. Okay. So. I, there's a couple of um, responses I want to make. Again, the language issue is really interesting. It's it's quite confusing in Czechoslovakia because a lot of them, I actually think, for nationalist reasons, 
um, claim not to know Russian or, or refuse to learn Russian. And so even in the 80s, um, I found um, in the archives very recently, um, there was a collaborative project between um, the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia um, on uh, psychopharmaceuticals, particularly um, antipsychotics, a drug called reserpine. Importantly, actually, uh, the Eastern Bloc produ produced all the same um, psychiatric drugs that the West did and did it through the, um, um, the state-owned pharmaceutical companies. Um, and they're Czechs and they're Russians, so they're both Slavs, but the, the, they do their own stuff separately and write it up, and then they write up in English um, a summary for each other. So they're using English for that, but often in, um, in journals you'll have um, uh, abstracts in German, French and Russian as well for, for Czech research. So I think, again, very much this attempt to try and be international. You find German as an international language? It would be interesting. So the Czechs, yeah, the, particularly the earlier, the 50s generation, they they have German probably um, as much as they have Czech, for sure. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what the other questions were now. Oh, the, the question about whether it um, proceeded um, on its own... Um, trajectory. Um, and actually, I, I'd say, yes, there are many ways in which it did do so, but I think, again, this attempt to keep up with the West, um, and I suspect that this may also have been similar with the GDR as well, um, that, that I I've sort of feel as if the very ready adoption of things like psychopharmaceutical drugs is, in a sense, a way of, and continuing to go to as many conferences as they possibly could in the West, is in a sense a way of keeping up with and showing that they are as good as the West. So I almost feel as if Western theories are taken up with quite a lot of enthusiasm and almost uncritically at times, and that's to do with Cold War competition and inferiority, I suppose. I've got just a couple of things. I, mean, I was just thinking about the, the translations in particular, and certainly in the certainly in the Soviet climate science area, there was a lot of translation of Badiko's work, for example, uh, by a whole range of particularly American agencies. NASA did quite a, a lot of uh, translation work. The Weather Bureau in Washington did, did translation works uh, and so on. So you get a whole range of actors hooking into Bidiko's work and then doing the translations from Russian into to English. Um, Bidiko, we've, well, I've kind of followed his, his work, his, what he's quoting, and, and he's certainly engaged with a great deal of English, English language work in his, in his own work. But Bidiko's an odd one because he then had a whole range of English, very, very well received English pieces of work, book length works that were translated into English. Um, so he, in that area, and I think it's wrapped up, it's a bigger debate which we can't go into here, but it's wrapped up with the whole way in which the climate change debate shifted in the 80s, I think, and then hooked into uh, nuclear winter, um, which was, again, Bidiko was crucial there with. Uh, uh, and the whole nuclear winter debate became another way of the Americans and the Soviets uh, began to trade their ideas in English, actually. Yeah, just, uh, just a couple of quick points. Um, yeah, surveillance. I, 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 I don't know um, any specifics, but my, you know, my guess would be that surveillance would be something which uh, was accelerated really during the Cold War. It's something, of course, which broadly conceived predates uh, 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 World War Two, but it, it, it was it was a Cold War, and it's um, and, and it's sort of imperative, especially domestic imperatives, you know, which would have accelerated it, and and also the idea of mass surveillance as well, with the extent to which 
they would have been able to put that into practice during the Cold War, I'm not so sure. But, uh, yeah. Uh, secondly, uh, yeah, there's a question about scientists and their ability to uh, uh, impact policy. Was it if they if they if they move across the Iron Curtain or if they make contact with the other scientists? All right. Um, yeah. No, I think uh, you know I've done a bit of work on Pugwash, which was the international scientist movement that emerged in in the mid '60s and uh, mid to late '60s. And there was certainly a sense there that um, scientists would be able to have a greater impact on uh, their own uh, statesmen in their respective countries if they were able to uh, meet with other scientists and so build some sort of scientific uh, consensus across, you know, as they saw it, across the Iron Curtain. And that's certainly there in the Pugwash archives, which are mostly from the Western side uh, at, at Cambridge. But there are also, uh, my sense is that, that that's how some of the Soviet scientists recollected their participation as well, uh, looking back uh, into the 60s. So certainly those hopes were there. Um, and I know that some political scientists have made the claim that Podwash played an important role in, 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 uh, in sort of shaping policy towards nuclear weapons, disarmament, uh, monitoring of nuclear tests uh, in, in the late 60s. Yeah, just very briefly on the language bit again. Um, I, I think the, the question, at least from what I'm looking at, the, the problem is not so much that people don't speak English. Um, certainly not East Germans, because they certainly not scientists, because of course they learned English in school. Was not, not as the first foreign language, that was Russian, but as the second foreign language. And there was nothing um, like, like a translation service that, that someone mentioned, so I, was, I mean, they, they were expected to read English. I did run across that in a different context um, when, when writing about the Brundtland Commission, um, which had members from the Soviet Union, Hungary, um, and China, and Yugoslavia. And there was no problem except for the Chinese member who several, who had studied in, in the US, incidentally, but who several people told me they were convinced he didn't understand a word of what was being said. I don't know how he got his degree, but people said they never understood what he said. So he basically was excluded. So that was the 1980s. So my, my feeling is China was more excluded than, than you know, Eastern European countries. The, to, to me, the most, um, well, something I don't understand really is that they didn't invest in presenting their own work in English even though in many countries, and really you do find that quite often, it was specifically requested, including even presentations of their universities. Um, and you know, the only explanation I have that it was the wrong, the politically wrong language. Maybe there's a different explanation, but I don't have it. So, very quickly on the background point of view, history of science, technology, medicine, it's a crossroads subject. People come from all different directions. Some people come through the sciences, some come through philosophy, some through history. Um, my, my background's mathematics. I did maths at Cambridge and then got excited about history of science and then did a, got a degree, a PhD and stuff, and got into it that way. So, but there's no one typical pattern. We, we aren't all coming from one direction. Um, and it's the beauty of the subject, actually. It's well good. <laughs> Um, I want to say on the question of where did surveillance technologies come from, was there a Cold War infection? Absolutely. Now, the way of thinking about that is 
um, the particular demands that came out of institutions of the secret state for particular kinds of technologies. Now, surveillance, for example, the eavesdropping of the, um, the, the embassy in Germany, in Berlin, um, for example, the turning on of what, the fire hose of data of the satellites once those uh, um, was the main means of communication. What, you're, what eavesdropping is faced with is sudden floods of huge amounts of relatively simple data, actually. So the demand was for larger and larger memories and storage. And when you combine that with the other Cold War demand, which mostly came out from the nuclear side for very fast computation, then you have the two strands which, which drives particular um, computing in particular directions in the Cold War. So very much eavesdropping is a um, modern technology of eavesdropping has particular Cold War um, um, uh, context from which it's driven. Um, and, and just finally, on, on, the on, on the language point, Michael Gordon's Scientific Babel book is fantastic and gives a Cold War answer to, to um, it, it, it traces why the languages in which science has been spoken, but in particular asks the question of why did English become the predominant language? And, and, and his answer is, I think it's already been mentioned, but it's, it's about the translation, the investment, the massive Cold War investment in translation of Russian sources into English. American scientists didn't need to learn Russian um, anymore because it was, it was provided on a plate. The, 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 of the resources that were put into translation. And uh, different stories could be told for why German and French became less of, a, of, of, of an important uh, skill language to have for English-speaking scientists. But, but, the, but, the cru but crucially, how did, where did access to Russian um, science come from? Well, it could come through translation services. And, uh, and perhaps the investment was different in the East. Thank you. Um, okay, we have a one, time for one last round of questions, and as I'm just going to abuse my power as chair and, and really take the first um, question uh, or, or comments. Uh, just, just brief, um, two brief things on the language thing. Um, actually, I think French is, was all, also in play, of course, with the international organizations, and for instance, Hungarians. Um, wrote to the WHO that please don't send us anything in French because nobody speaks French, send us everything in English. The other thing they published very um, uh, extensively in English, they had their own Hungarian English language journals, um, uh, scientific journals, and, and there was, you know, that, that sometimes the, the level of individual scientists collaboration was such that Sabin was, Albert Sabin was copy editing journal articles of Hungarian researchers to make it um, palatable for the Lancet or for, for, um, for certain journals. So there was also this kind of collaboration. And, and I'm happy to notice such interesting language, which is one of our future <coughs> workshops, the uh, Languages of Internationalism. And I hope to see many of you um, there again. And, and uh, I, I have, a, I have a, a question to John's point of how the, the science should be like we can talk about this transnational okay. collaboration, but it should be taken um, separately first and foremost. And and and, and you know, listening to the panels um, panelists, uh, it it seems like as we knew that Cold War science is extremely messy and, and entangled. And um, and I was wondering if 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 we do need to make a choice um, because these were um, 
you know, existing uh, parallel to each other and, and often within the same people and within the same practices. I mean, I mean what I see in, 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 in the politics of, of polio prevention, that you have, uh, you have at one point, there's no ideology, there's, you know, like, let's all work together on this, this is for the greater of mankind, and we're all in it together. Mm -hmm. Boom, next point, everybody closes off and it's a competition, and then suddenly again, you know, there's like, we're all, we're all brothers in here, mm -hmm. and, and it's, nobody is, even thinks that it's strange, mm -hmm. which I, you know, like, so I think, I think there was room for this sort of uh, very uh, strange thing, and I think that, that, that sort of um, supports um, um, Sarah's point as well, and, and, and also um, Jonathan's. So that's, that's, that's sort of my question, if, if there's another way to, to think about this. And I'll give the, the oh, to Julia, you. please. Thank you. I just wanted to ask the panel a question returning to this issue of how monolithic the different blocks were in the Cold War, because I know, uh, and, and particularly um, uh, how polycentric the control and use of um, scientific knowledge and technologies was um, as it kind of trickled out of the, you know, the, the big powers of the US or particularly the Soviet Union and later, later China. Because I know very, very little about science in the Cold War, but the two case studies I know a little bit about, it seems that in both those cases the junior partner does pretty well out of this knowledge transfer, manages to take the knowledge and, and doesn't really have to make many concessions about political control. One of those examples is uh, the massive transfer of knowledge in the Sino-Soviet split from Russia to China in the, uh, in the 1950s, which of course ends incredibly acrimoniously, but the Russians always feel bad about that. They feel, you know, the Chinese are so ungrateful. Um, we, gave, we gave them so much. It's a difficult time for us as well. And the other case would be um, uh, the Khmer Rouge and China, when, you know, sort of China between 1975 and 1979 is really propping up this regime, um, sort of financially, but also technically with all sorts of um, uh, help factories and, 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 and oil fields and so on and so forth. But the Khmer Rouge don't really sort of give much of an inch in terms of um, uh, uh, um, allowing the Chinese more political control. Um, uh, and of course this seems to be mentioned in certain works about um, uh, Russian aid, say to the third world, um, this, this sense that the Russians were in some way exploited, you know, their, their generosity was, it was exploited by unscrupulous um, uh, state builders or movement builders in, in the third world who took the money, who took the aid, but without really giving anything particularly back. So I was just wondering whether that impression seems to be correct. Thank you. Dean and then yeah, concerning the language issue, I just wanted to ask you if Sarah could give some examples from Slovakia. Um, the, the relationship, let's say, okay, you've spoken about Czech and, and Russian, but then when you look at Czechoslovakia, the Czechs are in a dominating role, and you know, this is the, the language issue um, has always been one of the uh, one of the major grievances of the Slovak national movement, and the same goes. For Yugoslavia, Slovenian intellectuals were complaining in the 1980s that, look, you know, Serbo-Croat is the lingua, lingua franca, even though Ljubljana has some of the main research institutes in uh, Yugoslavia, they're having to speak uh, Serbo-Croat at least on, on the federal level. And I'm sure the same happened in the Soviet Union with Russia uh, dominating the other languages. So, so I wanted to ask you in this regard, how did the language uh, issues play out in these uh, national communities in these federations in, in these federations 
when you have smaller linguistic communities that have grievances against uh, the larger ones. Okay, we'll take a last question for uh, Thank you. I've been looking at uh, tropical building knowledge in Eastern Europe. And what is striking, so you know, how do you construct buildings in tropical climates? And when you, uh, and what was striking when I was looking at this literature is the kind of vast asymmetry of reception. So, the, so in Eastern Europe, the Western literature was received, and that, and 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 very much so. There is very little, which, as far as I could say, that goes on the other side. And of course, there are some obvious reasons for that, the colonial experience, uh, on which, you know, which was fundamental for tropical building science. But there is significant experience on the other side, too. The Soviets benefited from the Central Asian republics, and that was really important. And of course, also the accumulation of the type of experience, you know, from the 60s onwards, which was really massive in scale. So I was wondering if anybody on the panel would uh, kind of know a similar type of really massive asymmetry in reception, and if so, what would be the reason for that? Thank you, and we have um, six minutes, so I'm <laughs> one minute for everybody. <laughs> 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 um, firstly, I, I go with what John was saying about there being lots of different scientific backgrounds and different kinds of backgrounds in history of science, but I, just to defend us, um, and John actually, because John used to teach me, so I know that he really is a proper historian. It very proudly um, tries to situate knowledge within its historical setting and its, its geographical setting. So um, that's common to all of us, I think. Um, in terms of language, yes, I put my hands up. I often do this. I miss Slovakia out. Um, but that is partly because they just didn't actually have as much research uh, psychiatry there. What happens is that they do um, publish in Slovak in the Czech journals, and they read across. And even in 1951, when the directive was sent out about reorganisation of psychiatry from the Ministry of Health, they all write back all of the different... Um, Lechebni, which I guess is asylums, right back in Slovak, and it's just read because it, it is. It, there's enough. I sometimes read Slovak and kind of get halfway down the page and think that looks weird, and then I realise that it's because it's Slovak because there is enough similarity that you can understand a certain amount of it. Um, so yes, that. Uh, I don't know whether there was any political upset about that though. Um, I just very again mine's a bit of a tangent, but just thinking about collaboration really, picking up on what you were saying. But I think certainly in the in the work, the two bits of work I've done that relate to this in a sense are work around uh, understandings of the biosphere, which then led into notions of sustainable development in the nineteen sixties, and then notions of of climate change. And I think in both of those areas, uh, collaboration was was actually very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, the and actually a lot of the work that I've that I've, yeah, I've moved, I've tended to move towards the collaborative efforts. So IGY, the 5758 International Biological Programme, you know, big UNESCO events. Uh, and, I was, and then I was also thinking as well of the kind of the specific, the Soviet USSR uh, kind of, uh, collaborations in the 70s around the environment. And so a lot of the work that I've done actually has been that, that movement and uh, the way in which the Soviet scientists got wrapped up in these, in these global, global issues and, and then were significant. Uh, in, so. Okay, I'd be interested to hear the role that international organizations, by the way, play for sort of um, building out that collaboration. But uh, anyway, yeah, broadly, I just want to uh, just address this point of whether there were two separate blocks um, and uh, the, 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 uh, whether they were homogeneous. And um, 
the, you know, th there are some historians who have essentially applied a sort of basic center periphery model both to the, to the West and to the East. So for example, they've argued that the United States tried very consciously to, uh, to mold a Europe which was scientific and technologically de uh, dependent on the United States in, in, uh, in sort of very particular areas, for example, uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear reactor technology, delivery systems, that sort of thing. Um, and the same argument, of course, has been made for um, within the Cold War dynamic between the superpowers and the developing world. So. Um, maybe a little bit more about the, like, just a small point about the question of asymmetry is not, not, I don't think exactly in the way that you meant it, but I think at least I've, one of the things that I find most interesting is actually the, the case of statistics, is where statistics in um, the Soviet Union and statistics in the United States are, end up have a completely different uh, meaning in the sense that um, statistics is in the Soviet, like it's still seen as uh, science of the state. Uh, so the way it's not, it shouldn't be developed, there, there are these people that argue that it shouldn't be developed with a mathematical field for its own right. Um, so there's a certain places that you can't find, uh, you know, even if something, and, and this, the way that statistic gets developed in kind of the two, the two sides is really different, uh, at least for a while, or, and especially how it develops and how it gets implemented. Um, Okay, before we, language, I tend to think that um, scientists follow where most of the research is done. I mean, during the interwar period, German was very important for chemistry, for biology, because world-class research was being done in Germany. That ended after the Second World War, and I, I think the U.S. just had so many funds and so many resources, I tend to think that's an important issue. Um, asymmetry and cooperation, I think you asked that. I don't see that to that extent with Germany, at least in the medical field. Um, there is often a lot of disappointment because um, the, because third world countries, okay, countries in Africa and Asia um, tend to be so volatile. So what you get repeatedly is that there are projects of cooperation and then there's revolution and then the old people are thrown out and the investment is in vain. Um, so. What I found, and, and I think we haven't really discussed that very much, is how people, uh, how governments dealt with the uh, scarcity of resources. Um, and what I find interesting is that Cuba, for instance, which we haven't mentioned yet here, found very innovative ways of doing relevant medical research with very little money, which in many ways was much more, um, again, relevant to other countries in, in the third world. And for some reason, the GI never did that. Research remained very conventional and very um, focused on, if you will, high-tech technology, which they couldn't afford very much and which the recipient countries couldn't afford very much. Okay. Um, sorry. The last person to speak, so I'll keep this very quick. I mean, just thinking about all these points and about the closeness and the, to what extent Eastern should, should be monolithic, I mean, one point that I would say is sometimes you find extraordinarily small trickles of, of information and contact having incredibly important consequences. And my favorite example of that, and I think it's probably the most important decision taken on scientific bases in, in the 20th century in this period is the choice of the one child per family policy in China and just how contingent that knowledge that 
on which that decision, where it came from, and um, and um, tracing the decision back. So after Deng Xiaoping um, opened, had formal modernizations, including within science and technology, and making a decision about the population issue, who could he turn to? It was a very small numbers of experts still standing, and this is constant Susan Greenhalgh's work. Um, crucially, there was a missile scientist who had been able to travel, had very contingently been able to get access to the cybernetic modelling of population similar to limits to growth, had brought that back and was able to offer particular evidence and particular arguments at that very point at which that particular decision was made. So there were connections, right? And, 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 and certainly in, in areas of, of medicine and international organisations in certain areas, those, those connections were broad, right? Um, but in other areas, we find these incredibly tiny openings um, which, have, which knowledge passes through and skills pass through on which very important decisions are made. And I think it's tracing some of those <coughs> consequences that I think is particularly important. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, I hope that we can um, continue some of these conversations. Um, as we